Well, hey everyone, thanks for checking out this message from Journey Church. These resources are so awesome to have when you're out in nature like we are and you gotta go be outside on these nice days. However, we want you to know that there is nothing better than true fellowship with believers and live worship with your fellow Christians. So be sure to use this message only in conjunction with getting fed in a community of believers. Hey, we also want you to get connected with us, so be sure to text the word CONNECT to 307-271-9160 so that you can stay in the loop with everything happening at Journey Church and get notifications about upcoming events. Hey, we pray that this message encourages you and inspires you as you continue this life on your walk with Jesus. Welcome this morning, this last Sunday in June. I just want to give you a quick reminder that next week will be the 4th of July weekend, uh, and we will be only having one service next Sunday. So please just mark that down in your calendar. We'll probably be sending out a text or a Facebook message. Just remember that. Uh, just one service that will happen next Sunday on that 4th of July weekend. Uh, it was so great to see Pastor Grant doing the announcements here today and uh, does such a great job. His role here at the church is, a, is the pastor of pastoral care. And what that means is anything you need, you go to him. And he will be there for you. And if there are any problems in the church, it's Grant's fault, and he will fix them. And so that is what his role is. Now, he is just here to love on you and uh, get to know you and make sure you, you really get to know him. Today is our final message in this series that we have been going through for several months now called The Ten Great Words for Life, where we have been taking a fresh look at the Ten Commandments and understanding that the Ten Commandments are not just words that were written or laws that were given or regulations that were given by God thousands of years ago, but they're relevant for our lives today. They really have a deep impact upon our lives as we have been really uh, tearing them apart. So today, as we get into the final message in this series, we're just gonna remind ourselves what we have been through and where we have come through in this series thus far. Jesus was teaching and there came to him a lawyer who was testing him. Now, a lawyer in that day was one who was an expert in the law of God. Came to him uh, testing him saying, which is the great commandment? And Jesus responded with those famous words. Uh, he says that, uh, uh, I'll tell you what the great commandment is. and It is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, as we've looked at that, we have seen that the Ten Commandments break nicely and neatly into two distinct categories. You have number one, you have the section of loving God. The first four commandments are all about loving God. And the second set of commandments, the final six commandments, are all about loving others, having relationships with them, how I honor them and treat other people, and having a heart of love toward people in life. And so all of the commandments fall into those distinct categories. Well, today... As we wrap up this, I want to remind you again all of the words of the Ten Commandments. We're going to read them all one last time. And the reason I've been doing this every time we have preached in this series is just to remind you of the commandments to make sure that they are near to your heart so you understand God's heart for humanity. Let's start. Commandment number one, it's in chapter 20 of the book of Exodus, starting in verse one of chapter 20 in Exodus. And it says these words. 
Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord, Adonai your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, again, that set the context and the stage for all of the commandments. God is saying, I'm the one who set you free. Because I set you free, here's how I want you to respond. This is the way that I want you to live. This is what I want your heart to be. Here's how I want you to respond because I set you free. So that is the context. God gives us freedom. That's what happened in the New Testament. We have Jesus who redeems us. He set us free from slavery. When he sets us free, here's what he wants and here's what he expects. Number one, he expects this, you shall have no other gods before me. Now what that message was about was undivided allegiance. And that is who I worship. Who is going to be the God, either capital G or lowercase g, of my life? Who will be God of my life? What will be the God of my life? Who will I pledge my allegiance to? Who or what will I bow down and worship with my heart? As a result of God setting us free, God wants us to worship him, and he becomes the one whom I, who I pledge my allegiance to. That led to commandment number two. Commandment number two was about undiminished worship. It says this, Do not make for yourself a graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or on the earth below or in the water under the earth. Do not bow down to them. Do not let anyone make you serve them. For I, Adonai, your God, am a jealous God, bringing the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me but showing loving kindness to thousands of generations to those who love me and keep my commands, my mitzvot in Hebrew. That was undiminished worship. That is about whom will I serve? I worship God, but do I also serve God? In other words, who sits on the throne of my heart? Who is king of my life? You can worship God, but he may not be the king of your life. You may not be surrendering him. You may be trying to run the show yourself. And so the second commandment was about who sits on my throne? Who sits on the throne of my heart? Who will I serve? So who do I worship? I worship God. Who do I serve? Who sits on the throne of my heart? It is the king. It is King Jesus who sits on my throne. Number three, third command. You must not take the name of Adonai your God in vain, for Adonai will, hold, will not hold him guiltless that takes his name in vain. Now that was about untarnished name, and that was about how do I represent and speak about the God who sits on the throne of my heart whom I worship. And so you see there's a natural progression. I worship God. He sits on the throne of my heart, and now I'm a wonderful representative and ambassador for him in the way that I live out my life. I'm a good representative of him. Are you a good representation of who God is in the way you are conducting yourself in this world? Are you a wonderful ambassador for him in the way you live out your life? Number four. Remember the day of Sabbath, Yom Shabbat in Hebrew, to keep it holy. You are to work six days and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Shabbat to Adonai your God. In it you shall do no work, not you, not your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your cattle, nor the outsider that is within your gates. For in six days Adonai made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Thus Adonai blessed the day of Sabbath, Yom Shabbat, 
and made it holy. So what that is about is learning then how do I rest in the God whom I represent, who sits on the throne of my heart, whom I worship. Am I, am I learning just to rest and be still and cease and quit striving and just find that rest in him? Jesus in the New Testament says he is our Sabbath rest. So we find our rest in God. We have that connection with him. We are learning how to be in relationship with the God who sits on our throne, who we serve with all of our heart. Now, all of those set the foundation for the final six. And the final six are all about how do I love people? How do I honor people? How do I treat people with value and respect as fellow image bearers of God whom he died for? I know people can be difficult. They can be challenging. They can be frustrating at times. They can be hard to love at times. Yet, God has called us to love people, to be in right relationship with them because they're fellow image bearers of God, and he died for them. And so here's what it says. First one, which was command number five, honor your father and mother so that your days may be long upon the land which Adonai your God is giving you. That is about honoring people, honoring especially parents, but honoring elders and honoring those in authority, treating them with value and respect and honor in the way that we treat and deal with people. Do you treat people with honor? Do you treat people with value? Do you show respect and kindness toward people? That's what this command is about. Number six, do not murder. That was about honoring life. When you see people with value, then you want to deal with them as people who, have, who, who deserve respect and deserve honor. Part of this was also dealing with your own anger that is under the surface because that's the root of what a lot of the murderous ideas are all about. It's all started in my heart, in the anger in my heart. Now, you may have the attitude of, I will, I will never kill somebody, but I sure would celebrate if they died. I would sure be happy if they died, and that is showing the condition of my heart. It is dealing with my own life and dealing with the anger that is in my life. That's what that command was about. Number seven, do not commit adultery, and that was about honoring God's plan for sexual morality, honoring God's plan for what marriage and the family is supposed to look like. Put away the sexual immorality, deal with the lust that is in your own heart. So we have dealing with your, your disrespect, dealing with dishonor toward people, dealing with anger, dealing with lust. It's all, again, coming down to the heart. Number eight, do not steal. What is that about? That is about honoring property. Don't take what is not yours. Don't be jealous. Don't be envious. Respect others enough not to take what is rightfully theirs. That is respecting and honoring property. Number nine, do not bear false witness against your neighbor. That is about honoring honesty and integrity and reputation. In the book of Ephesians, Paul says it this way, speak truth, each one of you, with your neighbor, for you are members of one another. So God values truth. He values integrity. He values honesty. Finally today, we are going to get into commandment number 10, wrapping up this entire series. Do not covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, his manservant, his maidservant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. What is this message about? It's honoring in the heart. Let's pray as we begin. Father, 
as we get into this message today and as we wrap up this series today, help us to really take these to heart. I pray, Lord, that they would be more than a list, more than rules written on a paper, more than just things that we are striving for, that they would really be written on our hearts and that it would be the desire of our hearts to do these things. We're not doing these things out of obligation, Lord. We're not doing it out of a sense of duty. We are doing these things out of a love and a desire to follow you. We want to worship you. We want you to sit on the throne of our hearts, and we want you to deal with the things in our lives that need to be dealt with so that we can be in right relationship with you and others. Lord, today as we talk about this idea of coveting, help us to really have your heart and your understanding when it comes to what you're really getting after. Lord, be with us now. Teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is an interesting commandment that we are going to wrap all of this up with. It said, these words do not covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, his manservant, his maidservant, his ox, his donkey, anything that is your neighbor's. My wife, Jennifer, who... Um, is in charge of the children's ministry, was teaching through the commandments a couple of years ago, and she had our little nephew, Jeremiah, in her class with her, and she was going through all of these commandments, and she was talking about this to them, and she had them read this, and when she got to the part of do not covet your neighbor's donkey, my little nephew, Jeremiah, said, donkey? Who would want somebody's donkey? That is just crazy. I want to put this in modern day terminology for you. Do not covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's job, your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's husband. Do not covet their car, their boat, their ATV, their camper. Do not covet any of those things. That's the modern day translation of the idea of donkey uh, today. Donkey would probably be related a lot to, uh, to work and work situations. Don't covet those things. Instead, have something different. Now, what we're going to learn is what we've been learning every week with this series, and that is that all of this is about the heart. That's what all of it is about. So one last time, I want you to say this with me. It's all about the heart. This is where it all stems from. Lust in the heart, anger in the heart, stealing in the heart, dishonoring people in the heart. Our society, or a society in general, will crumble when God's principles are taken away. When God's principles are not followed, a society will lead to decay and collapse. It all starts with the very first commandment, not worshiping God. God's, the worship of God is the center of what society is supposed to be. When you take God out of the center of what society becomes, the hearts of people grow cold. When the hearts of people grow cold, anger starts to run rampant. Murder starts to happen, devaluing of life, disrespecting of authority, lying to one another, stealing from one another, cheating one another. Those things begin to happen. Sexual immorality runs rampant, and then you have the idea of coveting that becomes part of it. And where does coveting fit into all of this? Well, when you have a nation that does not honor God or worship him or lets him sit on the throne... When you have anger and murder happening in a society and the taking of life and the devaluing of life, when you have sexual immorality, theft, no respect toward others, lying and deceit, what you have left with is a society of people that are miserable, unhappy, 
depressed, anxious, angry, medicated, directionless people. And I would say if we could summarize what our society looks like today, we have a growing number of people that are in that category, miserable, unhappy, depressed, anxious, angry, medicated, and directionless. Would you agree with that? That, That's what our society looks like today. And why does that happen? Because God was taken away from the center of worship. And when you take God out of the center of worship, everything else flows as a result. Well, the final commandment we have is this. And I want to break down a couple of the words, and I want to get deeper into the heart of the matter of why this matters to God. And he starts it this way. He says, do not covet. Do not covet. What is covet? Let's take a deeper look at it in just a moment. But I want to throw up another word that is in here. Do not covet. And he lists a whole chain of things. But he summarizes it with this final word. He says, do not covet anything. So that really is the summary of all of it. Do not covet anything. If you are coveting anything, there is a problem. Well, okay, don't covet anything. Exactly what does coveting mean? Well, the word covet in the Hebrew language is the word hamad. And the word hamad means this. It means to strongly desire that which belongs to another. That's all that coveting is. To strongly desire that which belongs to another. To desire. To delight in to lust after, to find precious that which is not yours. Now, as soon as I hear that word precious, instantly I think of the Lord of the Rings series. If you have seen that, if you've watched that, what you should do, and this is a great date night, guys, but do the full, uh, full. well, you could do the full six movies now, and you could do it in the extended version. So it's a great date night that you can do. Your wife will appreciate it if you do that. But in that, you have this character, this creature, Gollum, who finds the ring, and that ring is the precious. And that is the picture of what coveting is. It is lusting after delighting, finding precious that which is not yours. Coveting is trying to find something or someone to truly make you happy. That's what coveting is. Looking at something or someone in order to be the source of your happiness in life. Well, the real problem in all of this is the heart of the problem, the heart of the matter of what the real problem is underlying the idea of coveting is this, it is discontentment. Discontent. We're a nation of people who are discontent. See, deep in the heart of all mankind, there is a longing and a hunger and thirst for kind of a driving force to be satisfied, to find peace, to find purpose, to find contentment. And finding nothing, we are left to feel a deep abiding discontentment in our lives. What is the definition of discontentment? Here's what it is. It's the state or quality of being empty and dissatisfied, unhappy at hardship, having discomfort, being displeased, and full of anxiety. Are you discontent? Just not happy. Can never be happy. 
There's nothing that could change that is going to make me happy. I'm, I keep looking for that next, next carrot to strive after, that next job, that next person in my life, that next acquisition in order to finally make me happy, to make me satisfied, but I can't ever find it. And I'm left to constantly feel discontent. So what is the answer? What is the solution? Well, the solution is then the opposite that is finding contentment. And what is finding contentment? How would we define that? Well, that is the state or quality of being full and satisfied, happy, at ease, having comfort, being pleased, and at peace. The Apostle Paul, in the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 4, wrote something about contentment that we can learn when it deals with this idea of coveting. Because what coveting is, is a under, uh, uh, an underlying issue of being discontent in life and wanting what I don't have. Because I think that if I can get that thing that I don't have, then I'll finally be happy and I'll finally be content. Paul writes about it this way in Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. And I want to point out a couple of words to you in this, or a couple of phrases that he says. Look at what Paul writes. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Now he's writing to the church in Philippi, and he's saying, I'm rejoicing because you, you actually are concerned about me. Though you were always concerned before, but lacked the opportunity to show it. So they had just sent a gift to him, and they wanted to help him and help his ministry. And Paul said, you've always been concerned, but I'm so thankful that you did this. Then Paul goes on to say this, though. He's saying, I'm not saying that I needed this. I'm not saying this because I'm in need of any kind. Now notice these words. For whatever circumstance I am in... I have learned to be content. Notice those words. Whatever circumstance I'm in, I have learned to be content. Can you say that? Can you honestly say that what Paul just said, that no matter what circumstance I'm in, I feel content? Now, Paul's going to elaborate what that means. Here's what he says. I know what it is to live with humble means, meaning I know what it's like to be broke. And I know what it's like to live in prosperity. I know what it's like to have money in the bank. Notice again, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of contentment, both to be filled and to go hungry, to have abundance and suffer need, I can do all things through Messiah who strengthens me. Most people pull that verse completely out of context. They don't understand the context that Paul was writing. The context was this. I have learned whether I'm rich or poor, whether I have money in the bank or the bank account is empty, whether I have great circumstances or I don't, whether I have a house that is wonderful or I'm living on the street, Whether all things are going right or things are going wrong, whether I have medical problems or not, whether my job is great or not, whether I am in prison or not, Paul will talk about, I have learned in every circumstance that I can do all things through Christ. What can I do? I can be content. That's what the message is. I can learn and I know how to be content no matter what is going on in my life. I can, Paul says, do specifically all these things, all these extremes, both fullness, emptiness, richness, poorness, having abundance and suffering. I can do it all through the power of Christ 
that is at work in me. You know, really, Paul, what he's saying in this, in this message is this, either way, I'm okay. No matter what, I really am okay. Now, I want you to stop and think about that for just a moment. For Paul to say that is quite a claim because it goes contrary and it goes against the wisdom of our day. Because the wisdom of our day says specifically this, that my ability to be content is really the direct result of all of my circumstances falling into place. I get that promotion, finally I can be content. I have a lot of money in the bank, I can finally be content. I can retire with a lot, I can be content. I have uh, the house that I've dreamed of, I can finally be content. I have, a, I, I have the situation going, I can buy the things, then I can finally be content. But that's not what Paul is saying. He's saying in every circumstance, for most of us, contentment is dependent upon the right people being in my life and the wrong people being removed from my life. If I have that, then I'll be content. For most, contentment is the result of accumulating the right possessions. If I get enough, then I'll be content. If I don't have it, then I'll be discontent. For most, contentment is dependent upon people, possessions, and places. In a word, their circumstances. So if I have the right people in my life, then I'm content. If I have the wrong people in my life, I'm discontent. If I have the right possessions, I'm content. If I have the wrong possessions, I'm discontent. If I live in the right place, I'm content. If I'm in the wrong place, I'm discontent. And it's all about circumstances. Paul, what he is saying is this, that I have learned, no matter what the circumstances, I have learned how to be content. You know, I I remember... Uh, feeling this way, and I've talked to people who felt this way. Maybe you felt discontent in your life, and you thought, I know, I know, I, we're discontent in our marriage, so here's what the answer is. We're going to have a baby. That's what the answer will be. And if we have a baby, then we're finally going to be content. And so you have a baby. And you think, you know, what would really make us happy and really make us content is if I had a little sibling for my little precious child, we need to have another baby and then we'll finally be content. And then that little baby becomes a toddler and you think, well, if they, when they get out of the toddler stage, then we'll finally be content. And then they start having an attitude and then they become a teenager. And you think, well, if they could just, if they just get out of the teenager stage, then I'll be content. I know when they finally move out of the house and we're empty nesters, then we'll finally be content. Now ask yourself this really quick question that really gets down to the heart of contentment. Here's the question. Who is more content in life? The person who has $10 million or the person who has 10 children? Who's more content? That's obvious, right? The obvious answer is the person who has 10 children. Why is that? Because they don't want any more. They're finally content. That is the answer to the whole thing. That gets to the heart of if you're content or not. Because the person with 10 million always wants more. I need to have more. Contentment is really the problem, and it's what Paul is really saying in all of this. Now, the fact of the matter is there are many people in this room that are probably significant numbers that are very discontent in life, and maybe it's for very good reason. You, you, might, you might have difficulties in life. You may have a marriage that is painful, painful. 
You may be going home to a hate-filled home after you leave this service today. And because of that, you may be feeling incredibly discontent. You may have to go to a job on Monday morning, tomorrow morning, that you just despise. And you would love to leave that place, but there's nowhere else to go. And so you feel incredibly discontent. So there's good reason behind it. Some of you are in a horrible situation. Life is difficult, and it's hard to be content with life is difficult as it is. And here Paul comes along and says, I have learned how to be content. Now your first thought may be, well, good for you. Good, good for you, Paul. Why don't you, why don't you go write a book about it? <laughs> Which you kind of did in many ways. Paul, can you possibly understand what I'm going through? You, you don't understand what I'm dealing with. Do you know what Paul dealt with? Paul, who said, in any and every circumstance, I have learned to be content. Do you know what Paul's backstory was? He shares it in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Look what it says of Paul that he writes about himself. Are they servants of Messiah? I am more so. I speak like I'm out of my mind in labors and more, in prisons much more, in beatings more brutal, near death often. Five times from the Jewish leaders, I received 40 lashes minus one. Three times I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I spent in the open sea. In many journeys, I have been in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentile, dangers in the city, dangers in the desert, dangers in the sea, dangers among false brothers, in labor and hardship, through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Paul has a unique background, and this Paul, who is going through all of that, says, I have learned what it means to be content. F.B. Meyer, in his commentary on this verse, says it this way, Deprived of every comfort and cast as a lonely man on the shores of the great strange metropolis Rome, every movement of his hand clanking a fetter and nothing to look forward to but the lion's mouth or the executioner's sword, the apostle Paul speaks of contentment. So what was it about Paul? What did he learn that we don't know? How, how, how did he go through this? How did he understand contentment in a way that maybe we need to understand it today? Well, as we wrap this up and we wrap up this series, I want to share with you three things about contentment that I just want you to take hold of and really take into your heart as we close out this entire series, this series where we've understood it's about God, him sitting on the throne and him changing my life. And the final thing he changes in me is he makes me content. Well, number one, the first thing I want you to learn about contentment is this, that contentment is something learned. What do I mean by that? Paul said it this way. I have learned to be content. Now the word learned in the original Greek language means to increase one's knowledge, to be increased with knowledge, to learn by use and practice, to acquire the habit of, to be accustomed to. Paul is not saying that I just magically one day woke up and I was finally content. He's saying I have learned this. How do you learn that? You learn it over time through life. You learn it through the circumstances you have to go through. And as you go through the circumstances, you realize that really true contentment comes as a byproduct of walking with God more and more in my life. 
The more and more I walk with him, the more and more he is with me through the circumstances I go through, the more I learn what it means to finally be content. Have you learned that process? As God has stepped with you, maybe through a health problem, maybe God has walked with you through a painful marriage situation, and you've gotten to the other side of that, and you learned how to be content no matter what the circumstances. Maybe you realized through some job transitions or some painful health problems that you've dealt with, you just have learned what it means to finally rest in him and finally be content. It is not something that is a magical just instantaneous thing that God gives. It is a process that is learned over time through life, and that is how to be content. Do you know why we go through some of the trials we go through? Is that so that God can strip away all of the things that don't matter and leave us with what really does matter. We go through some of those trials so that he can teach us, do you really trust in me? Do you really rely upon me? Have you learned how to be content in me? No matter what happens around you, Are you content on the inside? And that's the message. That's the lesson that Paul learned. Number two, contentment teaches us the difference between sources and resources. Now, I've talked about this before. You probably remember me talking about this, but this is a good reminder. Contentment teaches you the difference between what is a source and a resource. Now, let's just recap. What does that mean? A source is that which I look to in order to find life and peace and satisfaction and fullness. That's what a source is. What is it that I look to to find life and peace and satisfaction and fullness? That's what a source is. What is a resource then? If that's what a source is, what is a resource? A resource is a gift given by God for the living out of my life. The problem that most people have is they take resources and they put them into the source category. I take things that have been given for the living out of my life and I make them the source of my life. Everything that I use to find life and peace and satisfaction and purpose. One of the areas that that happens in is marriage. When you get married... You get married to that other person and when you say your vows, you're just so happy and people look so beautiful and they're so in love. And about six months to a year, maybe five years, 10 years later, instead of feeling love and deep closeness toward each other, they feel, they feel animosity and anger and frustration. And where does that come from? It comes from the fact that when I thought I was getting married, I thought that I was going to marry the source of my life. You know, my wife is a wonderful wife, but she's a lousy source. She cannot give my life meaning and purpose. She's a wonderful gift of God for the living out of life, but I can't put my my trust in her. I can't put my life, my peace, and my satisfaction there. A house is a wonderful resource. Some of you have spectacular homes, and those homes are just phenomenal resources that God has given. But some of you have taken that home, and you've put it into the source category. How do you know if it's in the source category? If something ever happens to the home, if it burns down, if you lose your home, your life is over. It's destroyed because you're putting everything in that home basket, that is not your source. If, you're, if you lose your home, you still have life and you could still find contentment. That is the difference between a source and a resource. Number three, 
people who are understanding contentment understand that contentment causes us to invest the energy of our lives into things that have eternal value and eternal significance. What people who understand finally having contentment in their lives realize that I need to put my life's energy into things that really will make a difference for eternity. You know, I enjoy, I'm terrible at, but I enjoy the game of golf. If I go play golf and I practice golf and I, and I do golf all the time and I get really good at golf, have I really made a difference for all eternity? I don't really know that there's going to be a golf course in heaven. I just, I'm sorry to burst your bubble. I don't know that there's going to be a golf course in heaven. I know some of you may hope there is. Some of you may hope that there is not because you hate the game of golf. Have you made a difference for eternity? If you go fishing every day, if you go hunting every day, nothing wrong with fishing, nothing wrong with hunting, nothing wrong with golf, but have you made a difference of lasting eternal value by the way that you're spending the energy of your life? See, that's what contentment drives us to. It makes us realize that, you know, the things that used to be the priority really don't matter. The things that I used to value really don't matter. They're great. They're gifts of God. They're for the enjoyment of life, but they really don't matter in the end. That's what this idea of covening is all about. God, I don't want to covet, and I don't want to put value in something that doesn't need to have that value. And I want to make a difference for you for eternity because these things are just gifts to be enjoyed. It's not what I'm building my life upon. You know, true, true contentment is really a paradox. And what do I mean by a paradox? It means that true contentment is rarely secured directly. In other words, in order to find true contentment, I need to give up and let go of things. In order to try, try to find true contentment, I have to first seek God's kingdom and his righteousness, and then I will find what it means to be content. You can't hear a message about contentment and then go out and search for it. You have to first seek God, and he will add contentment into your life. Paul says, I've learned this. Over time, through my circumstances, no matter what my circumstances, I have learned to be content. I have learned to put the energy of my life into things that really do matter, that have an eternal value, eternal significance. I have learned what really matters, not the resources. I have learned to realize that it's the source that matters more than anything. Have you learned that type of contentment? As we wrap up this series, when we wrap up the very end of the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments are not a list of rules and regulations. The Ten Commandments are God's desire that he wants to write upon our hearts. It starts with worshiping him. It's joined by letting him sit on the throne of my heart. It culminates in being a good representative for him. I add to that learning to rest in him and relate to him and, and, and cease and be still and know him. Once I have done that, he will deal with my heart. He'll deal with my anger, the lust, the stealing, the lying, the coveting. He will deal with the problems that have generated and been in my life. And when he deals with that, 
I will be the person he wants me to be, the Christ-like individual who reflects the image of God everywhere I go. We are all works in progress, and you've heard that term before. We are works of art that God is sculpting into the image that he wants. It starts with the commandments of God that he has written on our hearts. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that we would understand your truth, that we would understand what you desire for our lives, that we would turn our hearts to you in worship and surrender, that we would learn to be a good representative of yours, that we would rest in you. And when we do that, Lord, that you will help us to be the kind of people you want us to be, the people who honor others, the people who see value in others, who have dealt with the anger and the murderous intents of our hearts. You are one that will deal with the lusts that we carry. You will deal with the, the falsehoods and the lies and the deceptions and the desire to steal and the desire to covet. And you will make us finally at rest and content and peace in our lives. Lord, if there's anyone in this room or anyone watching that needs today just to know you, to have that relationship with you, to lean upon you, I pray, Father, that this would be the day where they start a relationship, where they say to you, Jesus, please come into my heart and make me new. I know I've been worshiping things that are not right. I know that I have been serving things that are not right. I know I have been doing things that are not right, and I want to surrender all of myself to you today. Please forgive me of my sin and help me to walk with you for the rest of my days. Father, as we leave this place, help us to go into this community and make a difference for your kingdom's sake. Do a great revival here in this community where people would turn their hearts to you and their lives would be radically changed. Father, we thank you for meeting with us today. Be with us now as we leave. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for checking out that message from Journey Church. We pray that it inspired you to trust the Lord, to treasure people, and to transform our world with the saving gospel message of Jesus Christ. If God is leading you to give to this ministry, be sure to head over to journeychurchgillette.com and hit the give icon in the bottom right-hand corner. Your generous contributions allow us to continue making content like this week after week. So thank you for your generosity so that we can keep spreading the message of Jesus Christ all over the internet. Hey, God bless you guys, and thanks for listening to this message.